pray together. Our Lord, we are thankful for this morning to be able to celebrate your gospel and to be reminded again of your work in the world. We pray that our hearts would be filled up with faith, filled up with love for you, uh, for love for what you are doing in the world. We pray that even as we consider this story of Esther, that our hearts would be moved um, again to trust and to faith. We, we need our hearts to be moved to that because we live in a world where faith and trust and love for you um, is not encouraged, and, and so we need our faith to be built up today. I pray that for us. Work in our hearts, oh Lord, we need you to do that. We trust that you will. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, this weekend, my family, including my parents, we had an opportunity to take a short road trip down to Virginia and North Carolina. Actually, we just came in this morning, and as we were driving down uh, earlier this weekend, uh, my dad and I, he was sitting in the front seat with me, somehow got on the topic, uh, it just so happens, of the book of Esther. And the simple question that he had as we began talking about this book, uh, the simple question that he had was, why is this book in the Bible? Why of all books is this book in the Bible? And I saw him growing frustrated as he was asking this and as we were talking through this. Why of all books is the book of Esther in the Bible? How is it beneficial to anyone? I mean, what in this book could God possibly desire to speak to us about? We, we chuckled a bit as we talked through, and I, ha I myself have the question as well, perhaps you do as well, as we're just two weeks into this book. Why on earth has God decided to put the book of Esther in the Bible? Because as you've probably noticed, perhaps even if you've gotten the chance to read this book this week, the book of Esther is a little strange, isn't it? It's a little odd as you read it. It makes you feel uncomfortable at times. It's strange because you don't get the clean-cut stories, you don't get the clean-cut heroes that you might in other biblical books that you find in the scriptures. In fact, it doesn't feel like you're reading a book of the Bible at all. It more feels like you're reading perhaps something off of Oprah's book club rather than a holy inspired scripture from God himself. It doesn't feel much like the rest of the Bible. Because in the pages of Esther, as you flip through them, as we're going to be studying Esther in these weeks, what you see is that you don't, as we've said last week, find angelic visitations. You don't hear the thunderous voice of God coming down. Instead, as we've just even seen last week, this book has been filled with ridiculous amounts of wealth, power, over-the-top parties, blasted politicians who have been drinking for six months, wasted out of their minds, a hasty divorce, and now, today, we'll consider uninhibited sex. Uninhibited sex. It, it comes to you fast, it comes at you intense, and you read this book and you wonder, man, we're only two chapters into this book. We've got eight more to go. What is God trying to tell us through this book of Esther? It's why the great theologian Martin Luther, the reformer, says of this book, I am so great an enemy to Esther, and I wish that it had not come to us, for it has so many heathen unnaturalities. You hear that? This is Martin Luther, the reformer. 
the guy who, who loves the Bible, and he's saying, I wish this book, with all of its heathen unnaturalities, with all of its surprises and twists, and this book that doesn't seem to belong, I wish it did not come to us, because it's hard for us to digest what God is trying to speak through this book, and perhaps with good reason. Because after all, as we've said last week, God is nowhere to be found in this biblical book. His name from beginning to end is not mentioned, not once, not a whisper of his name is mentioned in this book. It's a book about God without ever mentioning God. How do you write a book like that? But I think this morning and in these weeks, I think this book is actually really crucial for your life and for my life. Because the God who is never seen in Esther if you were to be honest, feels a lot like the God that you and I never see in our lives or in the world. The God who's never mentioned or penned in the book of Esther feels a lot like the God who is not around. The God who feels absent and distant. Almost as if God once created the world, turned everything into orbit, threw it out into the galaxy and said, good luck with that. It's, it's hard to see the Lord. It's, it's hard to see him present. And as you read the book of Esther, you think, this feels a lot like my life. Where is God in this world that he has created? Where can I see him working in my life? Surprisingly, the book of Esther, in which God is never named, actually shows us that. Though we cannot see him, though we cannot hear him, the unseen hand of God is working in and through every moment of life and history. That's what we call the providence of God. Not happenstance, not fate, not coincidence, divine providence. That's what we see in the book of Esther. This morning we're in Esther 2, the passage Daniel read for us, page 410 in the Black Bibles in front of you. And as we read this, this long chapter of, of Esther and Mordecai, as they actually come into the scene, I want us to see two realities from this chapter, two quick realities to help us see this unseen God who is actually at work through every moment of life and history in this world. And I really do pray that this builds your faith and my faith and builds your love for God and builds my love for God, because we need to, in this world where God is not seen, see the Lord today. He is all over this book. And so let's consider what God has to say to us through this book. The first reality that I want to point out to us in the book is life in an imperfect world. Esther 2 shows us life in an imperfect world. If you remember last week, Ajay walked us through the first chapter of Esther, Starring who? King Ahasuerus. If you've watched the movie 300, years ago it came out, that's the guy, the bald guy who's tall and handsome. That guy, Xerxes, that's this guy right here, King Ahasuerus. In the movie 300, he's portrayed as this domineering, powerful, strong, secure, intimidating guy. But in Esther 1, and you're going to see throughout the book of Esther, King Xerxes is nothing more than a self-absorbed king with thin skin who makes poor calls. I'd never say that to his face, but I, I don't have to worry about that because he's not around. But that's who he is. He is insecure. He has thin skin. He makes poor calls. He's unstable. He actually can't make a decision for himself. Chapter 1 closes with this six-month 
right? A 180-day party, this drunken party that results in Xerxes banishing his wife Vashti because she didn't parade herself before the friends of the king when he asked. I'd wonder why you wouldn't want to do that. The king calls her into the courts to parade herself in front of his friends as a trophy, and Vashti refuses, and the whole empire goes into a panic because of her refusal, and chapter 2 picks up right there. It picks up a few short years after that, and what's happened since that is a few short years pass, and Xerxes actually goes to war with the Greeks, and he has a terrible defeat. So this man, now without a spouse, having lost a war, tired, worn out, his ego completely taken away from him, defeated from battle. That's where this picks up in Esther chapter 2. We'll read it again, beginning at verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what she had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So as as time goes on, it seems like Xerxes has eventually sobered up and he misses having a queen by his side. So what does he do? He gathers these young men, apparently complete morons and fools, to come up with this horrible plan. And the plan is to gather all the women in the provinces. There's over 100 provinces throughout that empire. It's estimated that over 1,000 women were gathered by these servants of the king. And these girls, they must be three things. They must be beautiful, they must be virgins, and they must be young. As we read on, we see finally that Esther and Mordecai actually enter the scene. Reading from verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." So to give you some background on who these two figures are, they're going to come up a lot throughout the book of Esther. Who are these two key figures in the story, Mordecai and Esther? Who are they? Well, for one, the scriptures tell us that they're cousins. Mordecai is the older cousin of young Esther, Esther whose parents died, and Mordecai who takes her in as his own daughter, raises her as his own daughter. He watches her grow up in stature. He watches this beautiful young woman grow up. Secondly, the Bible tells us that these two, Mordecai and Esther, are Jews. And though God is not mentioned once in this book, as you hear that, it should stick out to you because you know that Jewish people are the people of God. So it matters that these two people are Jewish people. 
Not only are they Jewish, but if you actually trace the names of who are listed there, you're going to actually see that these people, Mordecai and Esther, actually trace all the way back to the king Saul, the king who ruled. That's where they're coming from. That's the lineage that they're coming from. And not only are they Jewish with a lineage to King Saul, but the text also tells us that they are exiles. They're exiles in Persia. These Jewish people, because of their rebellion against God, if you look throughout the history of God over and over, the rebelling against God, sinning against God, showing God that they have a better way, and one day God exiles them to to Babylon, and they go away. They were sent into exile by God to Babylon. Until one day Babylon gives way to Persia, and the king of Persia, King Cyrus, actually tells these Israelites, tells these Jews, leave. Go back to your land. I encourage you, go back to your land. Go back and be with your people. But what happens? Not everyone goes back. Some decide to stay. We're not exactly sure why some decide to stay, but some decide Persia's the land for me. Perhaps they grew up there. Perhaps it's all they know. Mordecai and Esther were a part of that group. They decided to build a life in Persia, a place where they don't quite belong. While other books, like the book of Ezra, is about these Jewish people returning from exile and establishing themselves again with the Jewish culture and practice, this book, Esther, is about those Jews who, for whatever reason, didn't go back home but stayed and what life is now going to be like in Persia as outsiders, as those who were once exiled, as those who don't belong, trying to make sense of who they are. Now, with the stage set... You know who Mordecai is, you know who Esther is, you already know King Xerxes. The scene that begins to unfold in chapter 2 gets pretty adult pretty fast. It gets a little uncomfortable, actually. As I was reading it this week, perhaps as you read it this week or heard it this morning, your heart begins to curl up because of some of the things that you hear. And hopefully we'll have help by the Spirit to understand what God is trying to show us here. Reading from verse 8. Here's what happens. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, Esther that is, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her cosmetics and her portion of food, And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines." She would not go into the king again until, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. It almost seems like Xerxes and his servants call for the biggest, the longest lasting, 
beauty pageant in the history of the world. They call all of the young, beautiful virgins from this empire to come and participate in the longest-running beauty contest that's ever been seen. Like it's almost a competition for who's going to be Miss Persia. Right? You've seen beauty pageants. You've seen Miss America. You've seen Miss World. You know what those pageants are like. It's almost like a, a Cinderella story, isn't it? Uh, because as you read, perhaps you draw parallels, right? Perhaps Esther is like that poor young girl, Cinderella, sweeping the floor of her dirt shack, a poor nobody. Maybe she will one day be seen by this royal king at a ball, whisked away into his palace to live happily ever after. Perhaps that's the story that we're going to see. But before we get carried away into considering this as just a fairy tale, perhaps in even ways that we've heard it before, make no mistake about what is happening here. This is not just a beauty competition. This is a sex competition. This is a contest about sex and who can give the best sex and who can satisfy the king the best through sex. This is not simply a beauty pageant where these women change out a few clothes and are asked what their view on poverty in the world is like or what they'll do with a million dollars. This is a lot more seedy than that. It's a lot darker than that. This is a sex competition. It's a competition to see which of these thousand plus women, these beautiful young virgins, will sexually satisfy the king and impress him. Night after night, young girl, young teenage girl, after young teenage girl, they enter the king's chamber at night and leave in the morning no longer virgins. He takes their purity from them. They come in pure. They leave broken and disheveled. And if you consider there are years that go. There's a thousand plus women going into the king's chambers. Every night, a new young teenage girl. It makes your heart curl. If you, if you have kids in your family, if you have kids of your own, if you have friends of kids, you grow in anger because every night, this man, this king, is taking away the purity, the beauty of these young girls. Verse 12 talks about this year-long beautification process, almost as if it's a lovely thing, this wonderful process to get these young girls ready for the king's bed. But there's nothing beautiful about it. It's as one commentator put it, it's almost described like a lamb being fattened for the slaughter, just preparing another meal to satisfy a carnal appetite. It feels nothing more than that beautifying for a year each of these girls, ready for one night with this king. And consider this, what are the possible outcomes once you go into the king's chambers? Uh, what are you going to come out with? What, what are the possible outcomes? There's four. There's four possible outcomes. One, if you're the luckiest of them, well, you become queen. You take Vashti's place and you become king. You're certainly under the thumb of King Xerxes, but you're queen. You're queen of Persia. The second option, you become one of the few wives of the king, one of many, and at least your children, they'll become heirs of the kingdom. Third, maybe if you're a bit lucky, 
If you've impressed the king enough, you become a concubine who is called into his chambers at his pleasure whenever he likes. Fourth option. The king wasn't impressed with you. The king didn't like you very much. You become a concubine who's never called upon again. You're actually now permanently his property. You never are allowed to leave again. You don't go back home. You're the king's. You'll never see the king again. You cannot marry. You don't have kids. All the dreams you've had of your life, they're now shattered, never allowed to see or experience the life you once had before because now you are in the harem of the king. You belong to him. You're banished, essentially, as one preacher puts it, to permanent widowhood as a teenage girl. All of the family that you've already had you leave it behind, it's all gone. As we read Esther's story, verse 8, if you would just take a look at verse 8, it seems like, we're not sure, but she was forced into this, right? Because the word that's used here is taken. What control, can you ask, has she had over any of this? Did she ask to be an orphan? Jewish girl exiled in Persia? She didn't choose for Vashti to refuse the king. She didn't choose the king's edict. And it doesn't seem like she chose to be in the king's chambers that night. This scene, dear friends, is a grotesque and appalling display of Xerxes' utter self-absorption. Xerxes' utter self-gratification for his own pleasure he loves himself so much. Back then, the value of a woman was based on her appearance and what she could offer a man. Aren't you glad things are not that way today? Aren't you glad we don't live in a society in which we look at one another, especially men looking at women as objects? Aren't you glad we don't live in a world like that today? You and I both know that's not true. You and I both know that thousands of years ago, the appetite that was on the, the heart and mind of Xerxes is very well known to us. They may take different forms, but they are not unfamiliar to us. Listen, we may not have a palace or eunuchs that amount to what Xerxes has, but it's like one preacher put it that we heard this week. We're just like Xerxes, except that we just have our harem on our computer hard drives today. We call at will what we desire. We call at will those from the harem to show up on a screen. We call at will in our hearts. We bring up all that we desire. It may look different, friends, but our hearts, my heart, is just like Xerxes. And I pray that our hearts, Seven Mile Road, for both the men and the women, look, this looks differently for both men and women. I pray that our hearts would grow in conviction and repentance. Because as we look through the book of Esther, over and over again, what you're going to see is, that's me. That's me. That's who I am. That's where my heart goes. And as you read through the book of Esther, we live in a very 
imperfect, very broken world with broken institutions and corrupt systems. It's a world filled with greed and envy and lust and violence and hate. It's a world we cannot make much sense of and one in which we grow very weary and especially when those things start affecting us and our lives and our livelihood and our families and our friends and our cities. This world, dear friends, is an imperfect world that we live in. Imperfect world, the second reality is that life is lived as imperfect people. It's not just the imperfect world, but life is lived as imperfect people. And Esther shows us that not only do we live in an imperfect world, but our lives are messy, they're imperfect, they're really complex, they're not easy to figure out. There's a lot of situations and circumstances that we can't seem to make sense of. That's what life is like. Because you read the book of Esther, you wonder what is going on. You look at your own life, you think the same thing. Let's read from verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So you read, and Esther's on the dock. It's her turn to walk into the king's chambers. And you can hear as she walks in the bedroom door close behind her. And hours later, as dawn comes and morning dawns for one night audition, her one night audition is finished. It's done. And it seems like Esther wins, right? It seems like Esther actually wins this competition among over a thousand women. But as you hear that, it doesn't seem right to cheer her on. It doesn't seem right to say, good job, Esther. Way to go, Esther, for winning. Because one of the tensions that you'll feel in the book of Esther, and especially as you read chapter 2, is how are we supposed to view Esther? How are we supposed to consider Esther? Because we've just considered all that she's gone through, all the circumstances into which she found herself at the king's harem. But as you read, as you consider even what she's done, what she's been a part of, is she a victim? Is she at all compliant in this story? And it's interesting because when you look back to when Esther was introduced in verse 7, there's a bit of a clue there. How is she introduced in verse 7? She's named twice. She's named twice in verse 7. One with her Persian name, Esther, and another with her Jewish name, Hadassah. She's the only one named in the book with two names. And it's almost as if the, the writer of Esther is trying to give us a clue to show us that this young girl is caught between two worlds, two realities. Hadassah, Esther, the same person, but two different stories, two different upbringings, two different cultures. 
between her identity as Hadassah, the Jewish girl who belongs to God, and her identity as Esther, the Persian girl raised who lives in this world. The author is inviting you to feel this tension, this conflict of having your identity as one of God's people and as a citizen of this city and in this world. What's it like to be a follower of Christ in a city like Philadelphia? What's it like to follow God and yet walk the streets of our, our city, talk with the people in our city, interact with the, the struggles and the problems of our city, drive down 95 with the traffic and not scream out at other people in the middle of traffic in our city? What's it like to be a follower of God but also a follower, a follower and a citizen of the city that you find yourself in? Are you a Christian? Or do you just have, happen to have some religious commitments on the weekends? Do you adopt the values of the world by stepping on everyone to get ahead and to get that promotion, to grow higher on the corporate ladder? Or do you adopt the values of Jesus and see inherent value in each person that you encounter? When you come across Esther, you begin to feel this pull of two worlds, these two competing worlds. And as you read commentaries, if you were to dig into what people are saying about this, listen, everyone's saying Esther messed up here. A lot of people are saying, listen, if you're on the conservative side, the liberal side, the feminist side, the, the Jewish side, even the Christian side, some people are saying Esther has messed up. Because for the liberal or feminist, they look at Vashti and they're saying, there, she's our hero. She stood up to the man. She stood up when the man was trying to take advantage of her. But what about Esther? It seems like Esther is going along with anything that comes. She's not the hero that you would imagine. How about for the conservatives or for those who are religious? They also think she's failed miserably here. Because she hides the fact that she's a Jew. She isn't following the dietary law. She's not observing the Sabbath. She's entered into premarital sex with an uncircumcised pagan. And what's worse, she marries the guy. She becomes the queen of this guy, of a pagan culture and society. The religiously inclined have been so bothered with this account of Esther that they've made up things to soften the blow of what this feels like for us as we read it. They've made up things like, you know what, it wasn't actually Esther who went into the king's chambers. It was a ghostly spirit that went into the king's chambers. It wasn't Esther. It couldn't have been our sweet, dear Jewish Esther. Because as you read the Bible, there's lots of accounts of righteous rebellion when it comes to following God, isn't there? There's lots of examples where people, even at great threat to their lives, were given a choice. Are you going to follow God or are you going to succumb? Daniel refused to eat the, the, the pagan king's food. He was thrown eventually into the lion's den. His three friends refused to bow down to the king's idols and they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Joseph was pursued and refused the advances of a powerful woman. He spent years in a dungeon. So as we read Esther's story, we can't help but ask, Esther, tell us what's going on, sister. How have you found yourself in this predicament? But I'd, I'd venture to ask, what if the problem isn't with Esther? What if the problem is with the way, ways in which we expect the Bible to speak to us? The ways in which we actually read the Bible? Uh, because I, I think 
I certainly have, and perhaps you have as well, we tend to sometimes read the Bible as this great chronicle of moral, exemplary characters. People that we look at and say, they're the heroes that we follow. They are the giants, the the ethical examples that we are to look at and say, I've got to be like that. I've got to be like Esther. I've got to be like Joseph. I've got to be like Daniel. And so you come to a story like Esther's, And we get confused and we get angry because people like Esther are supposed to be moral examples, aren't they? I mean, there's not many women in the book of the Bible named after a woman. Wouldn't you want Esther to stand out and say, I want my daughter to be like Esther? Isn't that what you run to? We assume the Bible, the message of the Bible, is God blessing those who are morally exemplar. That God saves those who do really well at morality. But it's quite the opposite, isn't it? It's, as one pastor puts it, the message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives grace to people who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, and who don't even appreciate it once they receive it. Because the Bible is filled with men like Abraham, who lies to some folks about his wife being his wife and pimps her out to save his own life. That's Abraham. It's filled with people like David, right? You say, be like David, until you remember, wait, David is an adulterer and committed murder. Am I supposed to be like David in those scenarios or just other ones? These biblical characters are really important in one sense. They are not like us in one sense. Right? They're specifically, particularly written into God's redemptive story very specifically. But in a lot of ways, these people are strangely familiar to you and I. Be like Esther, really? Be like Esther? I don't know that that's the advice I'm going to give my daughter as she's, raising, uh, as she's rising in stature. I don't know that I'm going to tell my daughter, hey, be like Esther. What would be the advice that I give her? Be like Esther, How? We are people living in an imperfect world with lives that are messy, broken, complex, and imperfect. So, to answer the question that my dad and I were asking in the car this weekend, why is this book in the Bible? Why is this book in the Bible? Why is this specific story in the Bible? It's not to read her story and ultimately make a judgment. Is she compliant or is she a victim? I need an answer to that. It's not that. It's not even, I've got to look at Esther. I've got to figure out ways in which I've got to model after Esther. Because that's a script you would not want to follow very far. This story in the Bible, dear friends, is to show us that God's unseen providential hand is at work in the massive brokenness of our world. His unseen providential hand is at work through the massive brokenness that you and I see in the world and in the massive imperfections and failures of our lives, of your life, that God is providentially unseen at work in the brokenness of your life. It's here to show us that there is an unseen mover who is providentially orchestrating every detail of our lives towards redemptive purposes. It's not meaningless. Because when you and I look at our imperfect world and our imperfect lives, 
and the imperfect circumstances we find ourselves in, we cannot make sense of them. We can only see what's right in front of us. We have no idea why what's happening is happening. And yet in this book, the reality is that God is providentially positioning two weak, imperfect people in Esther and Mordecai through imperfect and messy circumstances to bring about his redemptive plan in the world. In the world. God doesn't show up in this book with a burning bush. God doesn't show up in this book with the parting of the Red Sea. In fact, God seems completely absent, doesn't he? But by the end of the story, you realize that a million pieces have been moving to save and preserve the Jewish people from beginning to end. Because consider this, if Xerxes didn't get drunk, it's not something you're supposed to do. If Xerxes didn't get drunk, if Vashti didn't stand up to the bullying king, if Esther, who happened to be a Jew, just happens to be a Jew, wasn't remarkably, remarkably beautiful and a standout to the king, even though that situation was really dark and really horrific, God's fulfillment to bring about the Savior would not happen. Through these dark circumstances, through every one of those details, Listen, God is providentially unseen, working out every single detail of human history. As one pastor put it, when you see the ten plagues, for example, you look at that and you say, wow, that was God. That was God. But when Xerxes gets blasted out of his mind, you don't stand back and say, wow, there's God at work. Right? You don't look back and, and praise God for Xerxes being blasted and wasted in front of all of his friends. And think about your life. How many things do you look at and experience in life? You stand back and say, wow, that is God. And yet, all around you, the reason you're sitting here right now, the reason you're experiencing what you're experiencing right now, the heartache, the joy, the city you live in, the work you're doing, the family you have, the friends you have, the influences that you have, all providentially working towards your good, towards God's redemptive purposes in the world and for your good. The book of Esther tells us, don't make the mistake. God is at work through everything. God is at work both through the massive things and the ordinary things. As we close, as you see Esther's story, someone caught between two worlds, her religious identity, and her worldly identity. Listen, let it be a mirror for you. Let it be a mirror to you. Because you and I are those who are morally complex. We're sketchy. Right? We often don't know how to make sense of, I am a Christian, but I'm also in this world. How do I marry those two? How do I reconcile the reality that I've been raised, influences with the cultural norms and all the expectations that are around me, and yet I know God, but I struggle to know what that looks like on the ground. We are morally complex, unsure if we're making the right decisions, sometimes certain that we are not and still making them. We are imperfect people. How many times have you and I compromised? How many times have you and I gone to places, done things that we knew we shouldn't have, but we did. How many times have we compromised in different ways, conformed, perhaps even like Esther, to sexual immorality, 
to dark secrets or to hide who we really are to get ahead. How many times have we done that? You and I are not much of a beauty often spiritually. We're not much to look at. And yet, we have a God who does not give up on us. We have a God who doesn't love us, doesn't pursue us because we're lovely. He doesn't give, us, give up his life because we're lovely to look at. He gives up his life to make us lovely. He doesn't just weep or sympathize with us, unable to do anything about it. Friends, we have a God who is so big, he is so large, so providential, so sovereign over all things that he takes our sorrows, he takes our complex circumstances, he takes the sins that have been done against us, he takes our unexplainable pain and suffering, and yes, may this sound like grace in your ears, he takes even the most awful sins that you and I commit and somehow providentially weaves them into the fabric of his plan for your life and his glory. That's what you see in the book of Esther. He doesn't give up his life on a cross because we're lovely. He does it so that we might become lovely. There's a Portuguese proverb that goes like this. God writes straight, but with crooked lines. God writes straight, but with crooked lines. Friends, you and I are those crooked lines that he writes with. He's surely working all things for the good of those who love them. He's working all things for your good, for his glory. And I heard a lot of one-liners this week that I want to share one more as I close. I heard one preacher close with this. From now on, you should no longer say the devil is in the details. Because now that you have known about the providence of God, you should say, God is in the details. Every single one of them. Yes, he is. Let's believe that. Ask him to allow you to believe that now. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged by your word this morning. We live in a broken world as broken people with imperfections and complexities of every kind, so much so that we can't make sense of them. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in this world that feels a lot like Esther's world, that you would give us a trust in your providential and unseen hand that is at work throughout all of the world, in the very minute details of our lives, all the brokenness that we experience, all the brokenness that we even commit in the world, the sins that we have felt, the sins that we commit. All the brokenness, O oh Lord, we pray that we would trust you and trust you to take all of that and to weave them into the fabric of your redemptive plan in the world. We know you're doing that because we look at the cross. And that's where you've taken the most awful thing and made the most beautiful thing, salvation for the world. Help us to believe that you are at work in every detail. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.